Sunday Morning Matinee is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Welcome to Sunday Morning Matinee, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm the minister of Overbrook Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And today, alongside our guest, Christy Lang Harrelson, we are burning this place down before graduation, Adam. We're going to catch up with Olivia Wilde's Booksmart, newly released on demand. And in our first segment, Justification by Faith, I'm going to ask Christy and Adam how Booksmart might help us think about life in the church and in the world. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with Booksmart for the upcoming Sunday, which will be the 17th Sunday after Pentecost, October 6th, which is also World Communion Sunday. And in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're reading or watching or following. Before we get too far, let me introduce our guest, Christy Lang Harrelson. Christy is the Assistant Professor of Religious and Theological Education at Villanova University. She's also co-editor of the book, How Youth Ministry Can Change Theological Education If We Let It. And somewhat in a less dignified role, she is Adam's spouse and was the first person I wanted to do this podcast with. But it's nice to finally get her on the show. Christy, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It is so great to be with both of you and fun to be in on this side of the show. So, Adam and Christy, we've we've done more than a few high school comedies on this show. Ferris Bueller is a generational take on the genre, maybe Clueless alongside it. And today we've got a new voice aspiring to make one of those generational movies about coming of age which is longtime actress Olivia Wilde, who has turned in her directorial debut with Booksmart out last spring. Booksmart finds two best friends, Amy and Molly, played by Caitlin Dever and Beanie Feldstein, who realize on the eve of graduation that they've spent four years doing nothing but academics and they've missed all the fun. So we have something of a staple of the genre, One Wild Night, No Holds Barred, This movie comes from co-producers Will Ferrell and Adam McKay, so it's got no shortage of the raunchy comedy beats, but it also has this wistful perspective on youth and friendship that reminded me in the best possible sense of something like 2017's Lady Bird, something more poignant about what it means to grow up. Christy, you think about growing up and coming of age all the time through the lens of Christian formation. I'm wondering what you saw in Booksmart that might have sparked your professional or theological imagination. You know, watching this, I I kept flipping between different lenses, thinking about uh, my background as a preacher and a theologian. And and so certain biblical texts kept coming to mind, uh, particularly Matthew 20's parable of the workers in the vineyard, and also the prodigal son and the older brother in it, and both of which are are stories of the resentment we feel when we realize that grace is for other people 
and not just for us, or that even grace might apply to us. And so that means that all of our hard work isn't really, in the end, what makes us worth something. So uh, so I was thinking about these scriptural stories, and then, uh, and then I noticed that there are these Shakespearean hints and little Easter eggs dropped in throughout the, throughout the film. So you've got, you know, these theater geeks who uh, want to do Shakespeare in the parking lot and where all of, (laughs) they're going to turn all of Shakespeare's tragedies into comedies or comedies into tragedies. They're going to turn all of his comedies into tragedies. And, uh, and, you know, there are certain elements of the plot itself that are very, Shakespearean, gender bending and love uh, going awry and, you know, your true love falling in love with someone else that reminded me of, of Twelfth Night, for example. And, um, but also this idea that there's this one night for things to happen that call on Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, so, so there were these two literary uh, corpuses, I think, in the background for me, the, the Bible and Shakespeare, but then uh, putting on my hat as a as someone who thinks about adolescence, uh, I see all of these interesting developmental themes through uh, through the film, where uh, you see these teenagers who are trying to make a claim on adulthood, but they're really still figuring out what it means to uh, have an identity, to be themselves in relationship and in relationship to a larger tribe. So, um, so I have, I have lots more ideas about the developmental processes that I saw there, but uh, I'm interested to hear what you all took away from this too. What about you, Adam? What 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 grabbed you and your imagination as you were watching? There's this moment where the movie is going to show you that it's going to hit all of the same beats of your typical high school generational movie, the ones that you named earlier, whether it's Ferris Bueller's, whether it's American Pie or Superbad or even, um, uh, what's it, Can't Hardly Wait, is mm-hmm. that the, you know? Mm-hmm. Then where there's this, there's this one night and everybody has to um, make the transition from um, from their adolescence into this new place. And so in, in many ways, the movie is about a sort of doorway. It's a portal that these characters are about to walk through. And on the other side of this night, you know that they're not going to be different. They're not going to be the same. They're going to be different. And hopefully that they have come to some deeper self-awareness with respect to themselves and to the world in which they live. What I think this movie does that is pretty interesting is that it lacks an enemy. There's there's no bad kid in this movie. In fact, even the ones that are that you meet initially who have some sort of um, who you who you think are going to follow fall into some typical high school trope tend to break out of it pretty easily and pretty quickly. And so, it, in many ways, this movie shows you how far this genre has come. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's making the same point as say the Breakfast Club did, which is that that you know the the geek and the jock um, and the weirdo uh, that they're all human fundamentally, and they have some of the same fundamental feelings about the world. They they share the same fears. They they are trying to muster courage to become who they're supposed to become, and they all have some um, some set of experiences in their background who have made them who they are for good or for ill. Um, but it's the breakfast club without the cruelty, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there. And so I kept thinking as I watched the movie about the, the idea of what it means to love your enemies as, and then, because I think every, at least Amy and, uh, and Molly come to this sense of like loving your enemies. Um, 
the people who they thought were their antagonists are actually not their antagonists. Um, and that realization actually turns them inward to figure out like, what are the parts about themselves that they don't actually like that they need to learn to love. And I actually found that to be a quite sophisticated way to think about it. Like what happens in a high school movie, which is that they grow to love each other in a deeper way, even though you think that their love is like all consuming at the very beginning of the movie, it actually finds some new depth by the end. Mm. Um, but I think in the meantime, it's able to find new depth because they better understand themselves and because they better understand themselves, they can express what they need in order to be loved. And they can see and sense and understand those sort of shadow sides of themselves that are, um, that are vying for attention and are the source of so much of their need. And so you, you named a couple of movies up, up at the top that were, um, uh, that you think are, were probably in the background. The, the movie that kind of stood out to me as being in the background, Matt, was Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Oh, interesting. In a, in a strange way, which was, you know, it's about a, a young adolescent trying to come to terms with the fact that um, he needs to learn how to love himself. And, um, and that's actually what it means to become mature. So, um, so those are some of the, the initial thoughts that I have. How about you, Matt? Um, and then I, I want to come back to Chrissy and, and hear from you what you think about the developmental side of this, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated by all of the genre conversation here. I mean, I feel like this movie, it's almost impossible to talk about it without beginning to name all of these other teen comedies that are kind of in the water with it. And I think for, for really good and valid reasons, it's not that it's not to say that this isn't original, but rather to kind of lift out what are the really important parts of conversation and even critique that Booksmart is trying to levy against previous ways that Hollywood and therefore culture around it have thought about what that coming of age formation looks like. I think the relationship with Scott Pilgrim is really interesting. I think the relationship with Breakfast Club, I think you've already named really, really well. I was thinking a little bit about this as sort of a flip side version of Dazed and Confused too. We're in Dazed and Confused. Yeah. You are you are enculturating the new high school, the new freshman into what adolescence looks like. And here at Booksmart, you are sort of you have the the kids who who never went to the party in Dazed and Confused who are now having this last chance to do it. Um, what, but one of the things that I find fascinating about this film is that the decision for Amy and Molly to to go and have this big night is 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 unusually rational by the standards of high school movies. <laughs> like they, they clearly have, you know, they have hormones, they have emotions, they, you know, they have all of these other kinds of desires, but, but they make a calculated decision, which is hmm. that the, and, and part of it is that the workers in the field analogy, and which I was screaming at the television 20 minutes into this movie, <laughs> like, Oh my gosh, what a beautiful <laughs> representation of that parable. And, and yeah. part of it is kind of almost in conversation with the guidance counselor, Ms. Fine, Jessica Williams' character, who has this bit of like, I made the same decisions you did in high school, and I, I studied really hard, and I didn't have fun, and then in my 20s, I went to a dark place. And, and she hmm. has this kind of lingering beat. We don't really ever find out what the content of that is, but it almost casts this shadow back of like, it is actually in your long-term best interest to go do stupid things right now, because if you don't, 
the consequences could be worse down the road. There's almost like a calculation involved, which I was kind of fascinated by. You know, um, what you just said, Matt, fits really well with developmental theory since um, Piaget and Eric Erickson. I knew who, that. Uh, yeah, yeah, you knew that. You knew it. you were saying something really <laughs> smart. Uh, but, you know, these um, developmental theorists uh, really, I mean, drawing on an earlier Freudian tradition, but doing their own thing with it, have said that uh, you we all have to successfully accomplish certain tasks in each stage of development. And if you don't successfully accomplish it, you can go on to some new stage, but you're going to be hindered. And that new stage is going to be twisted up in some way, or it's going to be lacking and something. And so then you have to go back and redo the work of that earlier stage in the new stage. And it, and it creates pain and crisis for you when you have to do that. And so, you know, I think the, uh, the, the teacher's character, she's, she's demonstrating what happens, right? When you, you skip some mm -hmm. important developmental process earlier on, and then you have to recapitulate it later, but the consequences are so much more serious at a later stage in life. If you haven't worked out prior conflicts, if you, you know, if you don't, if you haven't worked out who you trust or uh, who you want to be connected to in relationship, or you haven't worked out uh, independence or your ability to get work done, uh, then later on, working those out in a later stage of life, the stakes have gone up, and now it's much more mm -hmm. serious. So, uh, yeah, so even though it's this weird and, and uh, comedic, awkward moment where she's revealing this about her life, there's something really serious and, and actually kind of tragic about her story and the way she tells it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, th I think it gets I think you can almost see that reflected through uh, a variety of the different, quote unquote, adult characters in the movie who. Well, they're very few, right? I mean, there aren't <laughs> very many adult characters. No, there aren't. But they but it's interesting how the movie changes our perspective on them as it goes along. Right. How Miss Fine hmm. starts off being the cool teacher who gets our protagonists and they can do the crossword together. And isn't it great that we have this this one adult who. Um, sees the world the way that our heroes see the world and how tragic that becomes over the course of the film in its own way. Uh, whereas yeah. the, the kind of dorky, grown-ups just don't understand characters at the beginning end up, not. it's not that they become cool, but at least they feel like real authentic people um, by the end hmm. in a way that I, I, I just think that that twist is very interesting and does and says a lot about how far the movie pushes and how far it moves. Well, and to Chrissy's point, I think it, it you're you're meeting these adults at at, at different with different identities. Um, I mean, so Miss Fine is this teacher, but she you get her sort of outside of the classroom, and she now has to wear this different identity, and she's trying to negotiate that. And you you meet the the principal who um, who has to drive an Uber. Um, and to, to make ends meet, but also, you know, it's not just that he's making ends meet. He's like decorated his car. So he seems to be into it. And then even, um, even Amy's parents, like they're a little bit clueless, but they, they care and they're trying to negotiate what does it mean to be a parent in this particular age when, when ideas of sexuality and gender are, are shifting in, 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 in ways that they can't anticipate. I, I think what the movie is doing is that the internal uh, work that is happening within the two protagonists is, and they figure out who they are is also being reflected in the adults too. And I, I like that about this is that it's that this doorway that 
that both Amy and Molly are about to walk through is into a room with another door. Mm. And the adults themselves are trying to figure out, okay, so what does it mean for us in our current stage of life? And they're struggling with some of the same issues. I mean, so one of the central issues of every high school movie is right. is a, is a question of fear is like, who, who am I? Am I going to be loved? Am I going to be cared for? Um, and how do I, how do I get that love? How do I get the kind of care that I need? And how do I, how do I decide or come to a conclusion about my own identity going forward, considering everything feels so chaotic and, um, and this idea, this trope that shows up in so many of the high school movies of this, like one last night, Mm -hmm. it's, it's like the last chance that you have to really figure out who you're going to be before you transition into this next stage. And, um, and that's so scary. And, but what you see in the adults is that it's always scary from transitioning from one stage to the next. It, mm-hmm. There's never an opportunity when you're not afraid of the unknown that is approaching. Mm-hmm. Christy, I'm wondering, based on your work and your ministry, whether this movie felt true to you about what the sort of specific questions that adolescents are dealing with in 2019. Yeah, you know, I think I think movies about adolescents are always they always struggle with uh, the same dynamic, which is that they're obviously not being made by right. adolescents. <laughs> they're being made by adults who may be consulting with adolescents, but um, but you know that's necessary too, right? Because you can't really fully understand in. Um, critical way the stage of life you're in until you've moved beyond yeah. it and you can look back at it. And so there are, I think there is some wisdom in this film or at least some insight in this film into who adolescents are and um, and maybe adult anxieties about adolescents that are true to the time in which we're living. Um, whether or not a teenager would watch this and go, that's what it's like to be a teenager, sure. you know, I don't know. Um, I, you know, I think um, maybe not just so much about this time, but about the about the stage of adolescence. I, I think it can be helpful to know a little more about uh, different theories of identity formation in adolescence. Um, so there, there are two theories I'm kind of thinking about as I'm as I was watching this, and um, one is Eric Erickson's, where he says that in adolescence, you're moving out of this stage where the balance you had to figure out or the um, relationship you had to figure out was the relationship between industry and inferiority. Industry meaning like, can you get things done? Are you competent? Are you a good worker? And inferiority, like you can't get work done. You aren't able to achieve. And, um, and I see Molly's character in particular as being so caught up in having successfully negotiated that stage toward industry, Mm -hmm. right? She is a worker. She is the worker. She works all the time. And, um, she's, she really feels proud of herself. Like she negotiated that stage better than anyone else and turned out to be the best worker of anybody. And Amy it fits because she she is hardworking too, but she's always sort of inferior to Molly, right? So Amy has negotiated that as she sort of experiences her industry vicariously through her best friend, but she doesn't actually have a whole lot of confidence herself. Uh, but for Erickson, that's that's what you accomplish in childhood, and then in adolescence, the big shift is toward um, identity versus role confusion, and you have to decide what you're going to be faithful to. 
And um, so he calls that fidelity. And, and one of my teachers, Kenda Dean, has said that there's this important question there, too, of who will be faithful to me? Mm. Who can I count on, right? And so I, I do think that's a helpful theoretical perspective on, on the dynamics of this film, seeing adolescents work out what it means to shift toward a new uh, a new sense of identity that is um, built upon a prior understanding of themselves as capable and able to get things done, but also really having deep questions about who knows me. Like there, you know, there's that moment where the kid is sitting on uh, by the fire at the party, the mm -hmm. rich kid that no one likes, you know, and he's saying, I, don't, I feel like nobody here sees me. Nobody knows me. And then there's, you know, the beautiful swimming pool scene where she, Amy dives into the water and she's swimming around and it's like she really sees, she, I mean, she's looking at naked legs, right? It's like she really sees reality in this new way and has this sense of, I like, I am seeing people. And that's part of that shift into adolescence is wanting to see and be seen and to really figure out who you are and to commit yourself to that. Uh, so, so I think Erickson's helpful there. Um, but the but uh, a more um, uh, updated or um, a, a different take on identity formation uh, that I find helpful is from Robert Keegan. Keegan says that personality is really something that develops where the sub the subject and the object are always in relationship to each other. And um, we the, the way he talks about it is we are embedded in certain ways of being, and we can't actually see that way of being until we're out of it. So when we're an infant, we just are our needs. And when we are uh, a, a younger child, we are our perceptions. And then when we're an adolescent, we are our relationships. Mm -hmm. And in each stage, you have to, you have to, he says, you have to throw it away from yourself, not to, not to get rid of it, right? But to objectify it and say, now I, I'm not my relationships, I have my relationships. But crucial in that moment of moving from I am my relationships to I have my relationships is anger. You have to be able to get angry at the one in whom you're embedded in a relationship hmm. with. So for me, that fight scene right. was like so yeah. critical, right? Um, because suddenly they they can critique each other publicly, right? And they don't. It's not like they're enjoying it, but it's necessary for them to say, "I am not you, and you are not me. We have this relationship, mm -hmm. no, not we are a relationship." So. Hmm. I don't, you know, I don't know how well it speaks to the time in which we live, except that, um, you know, maybe, maybe rather perennially, at least in Western American culture, adolescence is a time of shifting from I am my relationships to I have my relationships. And now who am I going to be out in the world? Yeah, I mean, that that anger scene is, is really poignant, too, because it's set up over and over again by these moments where they sort of go over the top and complimenting each other and caring for each other and saying, right. Oh my God, right. you're, yeah, yeah, you're yeah. the most beautiful thing in the world. <laughs> and, and on the one hand, you, you hear that is as sincere, but you also recognize in it a sort of theater of sort of getting kind of pumped mm -hmm. up to try and face this world where you feel like you're isolated or you feel like you're the only two people in the world. And, um, and part of their ability to sort of move into this next phase of their relationship as friends is to discard those previous scripts and, you know, go off the page into something new. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A uh, question to both of you. Could either of you imagine using this film in, in your own 
ministry or your own kind of education context. I mean, it is super raunchy. So it, it's a complicated, complicated question. Yeah, about about 15 minutes in, I was like, I cannot believe you're making me come on your show. Man, this thing is, this thing is raunchy. It is naughty. Um, you know, in the in the right context for the right purpose, I think it would be useful. Uh, you know, I'm not going to show it to a youth group, <laughs> right? And I, so I, yes, all to exactly what Chrissy just said. But I think that there is something sort of poignant about the the last seven minutes oh, yeah. of the movie. You know, it, it, where. Amy finds her courage. Molly finds her humility. They make up. But then the, the speech that she gives to the high school it, as a valedictorian, I think actually it worked for me. It's a, I mean, it's a little shallow, but it worked for me. I was with them. Um, I love the fact that they sort of like break the gate down and tear it into like <laughs> that in a was awesome. car. It, like That's it just great. like from a, from a film standpoint, it, it has all of the sort of pathos that I want. And her her final thought as the valedictorian, as the person who's supposed to sort of sum up this experience is, hey, I thought I I didn't understand you. Yeah. And I'm sorry. And but it's great. And she affirms difference. And I think if there is something that is generational about this movie, that it yeah. is going to if that, I do think that adolescents right now have have a more sin, sincere comfort with the level of difference yeah. in the world that previous generations don't have, and this movie at least expresses that. In in part because it doesn't it doesn't treat the queerness of this movie or the various different gender identities of this movie with um, for laughs. It just portrays them as another part of the high school experience, and mm-hmm. and that was. At least to me, um, I think worth at least exploring in in a, in a small group setting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for me, I also loved the, the the last seven minutes, even just the last three. I love the um, the, the in depth poignancy of the drop off at the airport with all of its saccharine sweetness. And then this yeah. final beat where she comes back out and is like, screw this, let's get pancakes. And it cuts right to the credits. And I loved that. Yeah. That felt to me like such a beautiful way to hold and, and also release the, the tension of um, all of the emotional weight that has built up by that point. Uh, but then if the movie were to land on uh, the the if if the movie were to land in the saccharine, it wouldn't feel honest to what the the characters had tried to learn. So in some ways, the like screw it, let's get pancakes felt like the most important affirmation um, that that, that, mm-hmm. that the beat could have. And as I, I I don't know whether I could actually bring that clip into something, but uh, I, it felt it felt important to me and and useful. Yeah, I do. I wonder, I think I'm still sort of grappling with the the implications of this being a movie about two young women, uh, because um, that's that changes how I think about it a little bit. Um, and certainly um, the matter of fact feminist background of it um, changes it a little bit, too. And, and I think that that could be an interesting way to 
get at um, thinking about about girls and young women and um, you know think about the role of friendship in uh, developing and and also the the balance that young women have to strike between finding autonomy or independence even together and then um, the the threat of violence against them that lurks all the time, right? So this film doesn't go there, but it hints at it pretty strongly, right? <laughs> they get into the car of the Valley Strangler yeah. who describes how he could take them yeah. away, right? And, and you know, uh, but also uh, like the, the rich kid who's like, you know, come get bashed. Not seriously, not really, like in a consensual way, you know? So, um, so I think that might be another interesting angle on this to um, use in a, you know, with a, a group of parents or with youth leaders to think about, you know, how do we help young women negotiate a world where we want them to feel confident and free and to have strong relationships with each other and, and be able to build intimacy and also just come to grips with the reality that violence is always a possibility for young women. And it shows up even in the funniest of films that's sort of trying to ignore it. Before we move on to the scripture text, we are grateful for our partnership with the Christian Century and want to guide your attention to the great work they're doing. Not too long ago, they published an excerpt from David Bentley Hart's new book about salvation and heaven and hell. It's really interesting. I have uh, I have complicated feelings about David Bentley Hart, but um, he is undoubtedly a, a provocative and interesting writer, and I encourage everyone to go and uh, and check out what he's written uh, in the in the magazine. Also, if you are listening and don't yet subscribe to The Century, Sunday Morning Matinee listeners can get free magazine subscription, a trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. All right, Adam and Christy, let's move on to preaching. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir. We're going to look at the lectionary passages for October 6th, which is World Communion Sunday. We get uh, Lamentations and its sole inclusion in the lectionary. We get the beautiful Psalm 137 by the rivers of Babylon. We get uh, God's encouragement to Habakkuk to write the vision. And we get a parable from Jesus on seeds and slaves and meals. As you look at these passages, and obviously we've touched on some scriptural allusions already, and I think we could probably do workers in the field for a good 20 minutes here. But as you look at the particular ones for this Sunday, does anything jump out to you? Yeah, so I think I want to talk about Psalm 137 it's a it's a beautiful psalm and it's you know been made into so many amazing hymns and it it ends in a truly horrific way with the desire for vengeance by killing small children and it's mm. it's a it's a difficult psalm um that said there is within it this deep longing to have a place to be and a sincere confidence that Babylon is not where we sing our songs. This is not where we are comfortable. This is not our home. And, um, and even if you read the, the, the questions of the Babylonians with, you know, about singing the songs of Zion, um, as sincere ones or as mocking ones, I mean, the, the question is the same. It's like, we can't, it, it, nothing sounds right here. And it's really interesting to me that this is not, a, this is not a movie about one party. This is a movie about a number of parties um, where Amy and Molly are looking for a particular party and they, 
end up at all of these other parties. One's on a boat. One's this like murder mystery party. One is mm-hmm. the, at, you know, the guy's aunt's house. But the fact of the matter is, is like they don't actually fit in any of them. Mm-hmm. And they can't find their party. But there is this one moment in the movie where it feels like they actually can sing their songs, which is they're looking for the party and they get out their fake college IDs Mm. and they go to the library and they like fist bump people as they go into the library. And you get the, you get the sense that like, Oh, this is where they belong. This is where they feel most comfortable. This is like, they found their party, which is a strange thing. And it's played for ironic laughs, but the idea that like, you could have a place where you feel comfortable, where you feel like your songs are welcome and you can sing them with the sort of gusto that you want. Um, it's such a deep need. And I loved that moment in the movie where they were, they were allowed to arrive at the place that felt most comfortable to them. Uh, so that's what I've been thinking about. Matt, what about you? Where does this connect with the lectionary? Well, I want to just think about the Lamentations text for a second, uh, mm-hmm. because you know, we get Lamentations once in the lectionary cycle. This is a hard scripture to figure out how to place into the daily lives of Christians in 2019, because mm-hmm. it is so specifically speaking about the devastation of Jerusalem at a scale that is just not part of our everyday existence and at a level of trauma that is not part of our everyday existence. And so I want to talk about it kind of recognizing that there's, uh, there's something insulting about trying to use it in our lives, no matter what, because we can't quite, we, we can't access that level of trauma at the same time, um, and so p- putting that big footnote there, th- there's something I, that, that connected with me between the how lonely sits the city that was once full of people mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the sort of grief of um, graduation mm-hmm. and moving on. Uh, you have these parents who are uh, getting ready to be empty nesters, and there is loss there. Uh, you have, I mean, the 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 principal Jason Sudeikis's character is is doesn't seem unexcited about summer, but at the same time, he and and Miss Fine have formed relationships with these students who are about to leave, and part of the role of being a teacher is building these relationships and then watching people go, mm-hmm. uh, which is something that we deal with in church all the time. We we bring up these kids and then. Th- they leave and they're supposed to, and that's the structure and rhythm of it. And I, and I wonder if um, we spend so much time celebrating and benedicting and sending and perhaps don't give as much time as we could to the grief that ends up in the wake of that. And I wonder if how lonely sits the city that was once full of people could be a little bit of a refrain that would help us do it. So that's, hmm. that's, that's what I've been lingering with. I, so I, I was reading something this week where some psychologists had given a piece of advice to parents and they said that the hardest years of a parent's relationship is the first year that they married, the first year of their first child's life, and the first year when all of the children leave the house. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, so 
how lonely sits the bedroom that was once so full of people, you know, yeah. like the, the ability to see that emptiness and have it just be painful mm. as you watch people transition from the security and safety of a home of a place and have to go and move into what is a dangerous world that we all know is dangerous. And, um, and we lose the ability incrementally to protect them from that dangerous world. Mm. Yeah. And I, I mean, you know, I'm clearly have made my own transition to seeing this movie now through the eyes of a parent, but, uh, like I, 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 my heart was breaking for, uh, those parents who had made this elaborate dinner to celebrate on the evening before graduation. And yeah, it's a dumb dinner full of stupid dad jokes, but like, just my heart was breaking for them wanting this final communion. Right. Yeah. And then yeah. not being able to get it um, because uh, time kept passing. Yeah. You know, I, just kind of looking at all of the texts for the week, there's a pervasive theme of lament that shows up in a number of them, right? So lamentations and Habakkuk and Psalm 37, they're all, they're all about lament. They're all about the world having fallen apart and asking for God to do something, right? And um, and and then Habakkuk also hits on faith. Uh, so, you know, maybe this circles back to the parable of the workers in the vineyard, but um, verse 4 of Habakkuk 2 says, Look at the proud, their spirit is not right in them, but the righteous live by their faith. Uh, so, you know, this this calls to mind this image of Molly in the beginning of the film, right, who's recognizing that living living arrogantly or living in a way that really was about organizing her life over against other people's inferiority wasn't going to be the way to go. Um, but then, you know, looking ahead to looking ahead to uh, to Luke, you have, again, this theme of faith, right, where the apostles say to the Lord, increase our faith. And Jesus says, you know, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and, and it would obey you. And, uh, there's something about this film that keeps pushing me back toward uh, the question of what what stories we live by or what promises we believe about the future. And so, you know, is it the promise of I'm going to do all this work and then I will be paid back for it, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do everything right so that everything works out for me. And then at least in the context where I teach, the story continues. And then I'll have a lot of money and I can give back a little bit from what I've worked for, right? From what I've earned. And uh, stories of lament cut through narratives like that and make you see that the promises you believed about, I did everything right. No, sometimes bad things happen or violence happens and it didn't matter that you did everything right. It all falls apart. Or maybe, you know, you're like Molly and you think, oh, I did everything right. And now look, other people got something good too. And that's not fair. I should get more and better. Uh, and, and so I'm struck by the end of Jesus' parable, which is a really weird one that we don't really have time to delve into, but where he's talking about slaves, right? And says, you know, who, who uh, you know, what slave is going to say, like, I did, I did everything that was right, and now I should, I should get everything that I've earned. And instead, it's no, you know, the slave is supposed to, you serves the master and then sits down and says, I've only done what I ought to have done. 
right? And it's not about a reward. It's about um, it's about simply doing what was called for. Uh, so the whole, you know, the slave imagery, very upsetting, and we don't have time really to explore it. But but I think winding through this is this theme of, of, um, of thinking that we can succeed by hard work and merit. And then what happens when that narrative falls apart, whether because of violence on a global scale or disruptions in our own lives. And how do we handle that then? What new story can we find? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's right. And the, and, the, and what new story can we write, which is part of the Habakkuk vision, right? Which is like, yeah. God calls us in our lament to write a vision, not not from our the, the seat of self-righteousness, but from the seat of like the watchtower as you see God operating in the world. And mm. so you write that vision from from the, the the seat of faith and what does that look like with respect to the lives that we're about to lead or the lives that we lead on this side of the trauma or this side of um of the thing that has pierced the narrative of our own um of our own ability mm. yeah i think about mm-hmm. that scene early in the film when uh, when Molly is confronted in the bathroom and figures out that all these other kids that she's been dismissing for so long are also going to like tier one schools and mm-hmm. she, and, and they have this, uh, the exchange that is the button on that is where one of the other girls says to her, you know, it's, it's, it's not that we don't care about school. It's that we yeah. don't only care about school. Yeah. And, you know, school in the context of this film kind of stands in for that kind of, uh, we you almost kind of all works righteousness, but this yeah. this this uh, economy of doing the labor and reaping the necessary reward, uh, and what I think the what I think Molly is then getting offered is this kind of broader perspective that y'all are talking about the the vision that can see something that is bigger and more holistic uh, and is is more unfair, mm. but also more beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think that's what the movie is calling her into, which is, I think, one of the things that resonated so strongly with me. And, you know, I mean, one of the things that I was struck by is how often other characters say to them, you know, how often we've waited for how much we've right. waited for you, how much we've wanted you to come right. out. And, you know, it's like the the children, Jesus parable of the children who want people to play, sing and dance. Right. And, right. Um, but and it all a, seems very sincere. Like they see it's, it's yeah. it doesn't I'm so skeptical, but it seems so sincere. They really yeah. wanted them there. But then, um, you know, and maybe because Molly's love interest guy is sort of a he's just a, in uh, he is a charmer and can't help himself. But it's interesting how she can't help interpreting people's welcome of them in very specific sexual or um, Mm. intimate terms, right? So she can't hear a general invitation to, we want you to be here, apart from thinking, oh, you know, I'm being asked for this specific kind of relationship. And it just speaks to the fact that she hasn't experienced a broader community of welcome and doesn't even know what to do with it. It must mean, it must mean something much more than the welcome that it Mm. is. Seems like there's a place for a church in there somewhere. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> I think that's a good place to move on, uh, and this is the place in the show where we thank Christy for um, for her wisdom and for her insight. Uh, Christy, thank you for being on the show. It's been long overdue, but um, we're happy to have you here. Thank you. I think it's probably the best podcast in the universe. 
Well, it is now that we have our original host back. (laughs) This specific one or like yours? Yeah. 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 Not mine. No, 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 yeah. no. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, I mean, I think yours is. I think yours is one of the better ones. And... <laughs> All right, good work, good job. All right, Matt. Now it's time for our last segment. This is called Postludes, and it's just a chance to get another preacher thought from something else that we're watching or following. Matt, what's your postlude? All right, so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of discourse right now because it is the 25th anniversary of the premiere of Friends, uh, which was on <laughs> TV for. Ever and yes, we are that old, um, and and I want to send you all to one of the best pieces of kind of pop culture writing that I've looked at in a long time, which is on the Atlantic by Megan Garber, and it's called "On Chandler Bing's Job," and we will put a link to that up on the show notes. Uh, the point that Megan is trying to make, and she's not a theologian, but I find this to be a deeply theological point, uh, is that Friends existed in a time that was. Uh, suffused full and through with uh, a a theology of vocation, which was that if you found the thing that gave you joy, that eventually somebody would pay you for it. So Rachel gets to go be a fashion designer and Monica gets to go be a cook and, and Ross gets to go explain things to people professionally. Uh, And that Chandler is the sticky wicket in the middle of this theology who does a job that nobody fully understands and nobody fully comprehends and nobody likes. And that his, the grayness around his job is, is a, a necessary hole in what otherwise would be too rosy, uh, an understanding of how we get our professions and how we get our professional identities and who we actually mm-hmm. are. So let me read you just a little bit of this, because I think it's fabulous. Uh, It says, Friends cared deeply in its earnestly sardonic ways about the careers that it bequeathed to its protagonists. Its plots nourished and complicated and questions the Friends' jobs with an intensity that would anticipate other NBC shows like The Office and Parks and Rec, and that would embrace extremely 21st century assumptions about professions that double light as identities. Except, that is, when it came to Chandler. Chandler, who is so indifferent about what he does that he is unable to pay his job even the small courtesy of hating it. Chandler, besuited and bedraggled, whose work in a computer something or other summons the amorphous anxieties of the coming digital age. (laughs) I find that this is a theology that I am needing to preach a lot, which is to remind the folks in my pews that they are not their jobs. And that they in the waters of baptism have been called into an identity that is deeper and more resonant and bigger than uh, what is on their resume or what is on their report card or what it says on their business cards or any of that. And I, I find that people are needing to hear that a lot because we are in a time where who you are and what you do and how you earn your money are so uh, so endlessly superimposed on top of one another. And I think that this piece of writing does that work really well. And it has, and, and in so doing, is, is one of the better examples of good pop culture writing I've read in a long time. And in some ways, it's kind of reminded me of why I want to do a show like this. 
because it, it gets at how we can talk about the culture that is around us in a way that reminds us of basic truths about our, our creed and our, our faith tradition that we need to hear. So um, go read uh, On Chandler Bing's Job by Megan Garber and uh, come back and tell me how right I am. I am going to read that. So David Chang is a famous American chef. He also has a podcast, of course, naturally. Who doesn't? Um, we do. Uh, and there, I listen to the podcast fairly regularly. He has a, a really interesting group of guests that he um, that he invites on. And I generally listen to the chefs because I find them interesting. Um, there is one particular chef that he, I know that he is friends with, that he is like a, the major part of his circle, but he has not had on that I've been waiting for. And it arrived last week. And it is a conversation with Wiley Dufresne. Um, Wiley Dufresne is the sort of first American chef to begin to think about how um, sort of kitchen science can operate in the function of creating a fine dining experience. Um, Wiley Dufresne's most famous restaurant was uh, a restaurant in New York in the Lower East Side called WD-50. Um, WD-50 remains the most um, brilliant and important meal that I've ever eaten. Uh, I happened to go there many years ago. This is probably, I was probably my first year in seminary. So it's a long time ago. It was over 15 years ago. And, um, and we had the full course of tasting menu. Um, I went into debt in order to eat this meal, <laughs> like pre- pretty significant debt in fact, <laughs> to eat the meal and the wine pairing. And it was a, it was an eye opening experience in so many ways because of what he was doing. And it's really hard to explain sort of how he did what he did. Um, and it may seem like kind of rudimentary 15 years later, but it was, it was groundbreaking and sort of, and to me, life altering. And I went, to that dinner with three other people, um, two of whom I don't have, I don't talk to very often, but are still friends. And one who still remains a close friend. Whenever we are, I'm around any of them. We, we regularly reflect upon the meal and what we experience. Um, it is. Um, and in the conversation that he has with David Chang, they talk a lot about the sort of courage that it takes in order to try and do something new and what he was doing and how misunderstood it was at the time and um, how how much courage and effort he had to 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 do to have in order to make this. I found it just the, like just such an incredibly inspiring uh, conversation. And the thing that I found most inspiring was that um, he thought that in order to succeed, he had to just he had to study what other people were doing, and and by studying what other people were doing, he is he was going to try and sort of filter that through himself, be inspired by it all and do something new so that he, he worked really hard not to copy other people, but instead use their technique and ideas as inspiration for inspiring him. And he talks about how hard that is. And, and he talks really honestly about hard, how hard that is. And I found that to be just a, a, a really comforting conversation as someone who does want to do new things, but is frequently inspired by other ministers, by other ministries and other things that are going on in the world. And so if you were feeling like your creative levels are a little bit low right now, um, I encourage you to go check out the David Chang's um, conversation with Wiley Dufresne. I I sincerely enjoyed it and I will probably listen to it again in the very near future. Friends, that about wraps it up for this episode. If you like the show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes or come to the show page and tell us how we got it all wrong. 
We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at sundaymorningmatinee.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, Let's Get Pancakes. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Matt.